Hello and welcome back to We Not Me, the podcast where we explore how humans connect to get stuff done together. I'm Dan Hammond. And I am Pia Lee. You are indeed. And how's everything in your world, oh, Pia? Oh, fantastic. It is all, all going well. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? COVID is slightly abating. Yes. And uh, our latest Omicron. So it's allowing spikes of other news and it's been pretty <laughs> depressing. We're seeing human behaviour not at its best, either at a, you know, at a corporate level or at a government level. So, and that's yeah, it's been interesting. We're, we're going to talk about culture, and I, and I guess I'm left at the, as we go into this discussion. God, it's important because we just see the impact of what happens when it's not taken as important. It really you is. Know, we had a public apology here in Australia to the by the government for sexual harassment and bullying in a federal parliament yeah. that's meant to be the organization we have trust in yeah yeah and i don't even need to start talking about the uk and this sort of party gate thing while uh, there are a few voices saying come on it was just a party actually of course that reveals what the culture was and and, and may still be when you want the government to be focusing on 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 supporting the, the civilians, so it it really is important. And you know, in the, as you say, in the corporate world, um, Brewdog a couple of weeks ago, the brewery, the um, originally craft brewery company, now a Scottish beer giant. You know, they they've been rather plagued by scandal. And a couple of weeks ago, it was discovered that they were what CEO James Watt admitted to taking shortcuts in shipping beer with ingredients that had not been legally approved. Are they legal or illegal? I, I did read somewhere what those ingredients were. It didn't seem too shocking, but the point is that there was breaking regulations in the US. And one of the former workers told the investigation the pressure was enormous. Just make it happen. That was the culture. And that word leapt out at me. And it just really it reminded me that this is, well, culture sounds, oh, that's nice and fluffy. It ain't. You know, it's, it is a really important topic for teams and organisations everywhere. So I'm really glad to be talking about it today with Kevin from Red Pill. Who has got a lot of expertise in this. And I think this is going to be able to really unpick it and pull it apart and then go, so what's our responsibility in driving the optimal culture and supporting people? Welcome, Kevin. Thank you so much for joining us on the We Not Me podcast today. Thank you, Dan. It's great to see you. It's great to see you. Kevin, could you give us a, a quick introduction to yourself? Where, where, how did you get into this seat today? Oh, wow. So I own an organization called Red Pill Consulting. I've done that for the last 13 years now. And we try to help organizations change their culture. And that's the main focus of what we do. We work across most countries in Europe. We're a small operation, but pursuing culture change is our goal. And I'm going to ask a question. Why the name Red Pill? Red Pill, you won't be surprised to hear, comes from the Matrix yes. movie. Uh -huh. And in the movie, Morpheus offers Neo the Red Pill or the Blue Pill. And the Blue Pill promises him to go back to his normal life. And the red pill takes him to what Morpheus describes as Wonderland. And all he promises him is the truth. So I thought for a consulting company to promise the truth 
is a bit of a novelty in itself. So, so that's what we try to do. Oh, no, that one might catch on. Yeah, <laughs> you never know. <laughs> there's a, there's, yeah, there's, a, there's quite a bit of blue pill consulting out there. I think so. Good on you for taking a the lot, courageous yeah. path. And I think we'll hear a little bit of that truth later. But it's a great story. So, Kevin, welcome again. As you know, we start by torturing our kind guests um, with a little car- a conversation starter card game. So, I have these three packs in front of me, each with a question on them which might be a conversation starter card. Red, tricky questions. Amber, not too bad, medium questions. And green, nice, simple questions. Which ones, what would you like to go for? Dan, we're red, we're red pill. Red pill, I love it. I love it. It's got to be red. We, we are, we're, to quote Eddie Izzard, we're going to nearly, we're going to run out of red cards at this rate. Okay, so one monumental stuff up I made was? Goodness. I would say... My first day at work ever. <laughs> Great start. <laughs> I, arrived, I arrived at the head office of Imperial Inns and Taverns in Wakefield in West Yorkshire. And I was full of myself. I thought I knew it all before it entered through the door. I was speaking to the general manager about what I could offer him. And he proceeded to parade, walk me out into the main office, introduced me to the team. And he basically said... Dear everybody, please can I have your attention. This is Kevin Brownsey. He joined us today and he knows nothing. <laughs> and I felt about two inches tall. And if I hadn't been so blim and arrogant right from the outset, I wouldn't have had that That was problem. a lovely British oh, put down. That was just... It was humiliating beyond oh, words. Gosh. And I shrank. And, and possibly a red pill moment for you. But <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. That's a good segue, actually. Kevin, so let's let's um that was a uh, a bit of a challenge you thrown it at the deep end. So let's talk about culture and cultures. You know, like one of those terms, love, peace, and modern beads. We've all got different. We've got we've got different perspectives on it. So let's dive into it from your perspective. What is it we are talking about when we talk about culture, and why is it so important? Why is it so important? Is possibly the easier part of that question you know why is it so important because ultimately it enables your strategic execution it determines what behavioral norms are acceptable it determines the way you operate as a business it even influences things like organizational design but when you ask people what is culture you get a very broad spectrum of responses Um, For some people, it's all about values and beliefs. For other people, they describe it as outcomes. So you'll hear words like, we want a winning culture, we want a performance culture. Well, of course we do. Everybody does. But what you need to get to is something that you can communicate within your organization in an easy, straightforward way that people can understand. So usually that means taking a step back. Usually it means getting a set of Aligned beliefs communicated consistently by your leadership team, which translate into the way we work, the way we behave, and the design we put into our organization, and indeed the capabilities we choose to build. All of these are influenced by culture. So for us, it's the beliefs that underpin the behaviors that drive the outcome. 
not the outcomes themselves. Interesting. And people talk about this company's got a good culture, it's got a bad culture. Can you split that down a little bit for us? What are there any examples of culture? I'm assuming there, you know, there isn't a single good culture, is there? What, what's? I think fundamentally, we shouldn't be too judgmental about cultures. Organizations manage to be successful the world over. And there are some incredibly diverse cultures the world over. So lots of different culture types, if you like, can work, can be successful. And I think the critical thing when we start to talk about culture is that it is right for us. So it is enabling us to execute our strategy. And that's the most important element. And so Good and bad culture can be a bit of a confusion because we don't talk about good and bad culture. We talk about types of culture. And I think that's the easiest way to talk to organizations about it. And then, is there a safe environment within which to develop culture? And usually when people talk about bad culture, what they're really saying is that this is an unsafe environment. And you see things like, blame or disrespect or misogyny or sexism or whatever it happens to be, defining a very unsafe cultural environment. So when we work with people and when um, we talk to leaders about culture, we try to work on the safety aspect as a prerequisite for the culture change that we're trying to drive in the medium term. If you don't have the safety, you're not building on strong foundation. Okay, so Kevin, so, so we're here to talk about teams and we're looking at these. So what's the responsibility of the exec team in setting the tone? And what's your observations of seeing this? Can, can, the, can the exec team screw it up <laughs> or get in the way or could they oh, accelerate it? Absolutely all three and we see it frequently. I mean, the alignment of the exec team is probably the most critical element of successful culture change. So just think of a situation where the sales director and the marketing director and the finance director have a different set of beliefs about what good culture should look like. As soon as their teams have to cooperate, we have a problem. If you have very strongly opinionated leaders who haven't got alignment with their colleagues, you can also start to see leaders disappearing down a rabbit hole with culture because no one individual leader can pursue culture change independently. So this whole process of leadership teams getting aligned on a set of beliefs that will drive everything else within their organization is priority number one. And it's where often we spend least time. So the leadership team get together, they, they see some diagnostic output, they start to define the vision of the future, and we don't really work it through. So what are the consequences for our business? What are the consequences for our employees and for ourselves? And it's often the consequences for themselves that they don't consider enough. And these consequences can be fundamental. Yeah. So a guy that's been used to controlling things, making decisions, moving to a more empowered world. Yeah, sounds great in theory, but can that individual really let go and find another purpose for their role? So the consequences are critical. 
And, and I think the, the other thing that, that often executive teams, because of the nature of their role, tend to do is they tend to announce the culture. So we work through it, we define where we want to head towards, and then we announce it. As if by, you know, abracadabra, we now have a new culture that we're all working within. And this, of course, is, is not how it works because it's a very slow, deliberate process of change. Mm. And how, just maybe a step before that, how do you go about with a team, top team, how do you go about deciding, really defining that culture? I think there's two things we do. Down and, and, and they work in parallel. The first is we try to do a, do a diagnostic exercise using a, a sort of loose structure of, of cultural dimensions. We work with seven cultural dimensions. We ask leaders to respond to some stimulus along those seven cultural dimensions, and we see how aligned they are, how big a change is required, from where do we start a where do we need to go? And we ask those questions in the context of enabling strategic execution, not in the context of what would you like. And that's really important because that means they have to suspend personal preference and think of organizational strat- strategic execution. And that can, in itself can be quite hard. In parallel with this, we do a series of qualitative interviews. So everybody has the opportunity to express in their language the culture they perceive. And that enables us to get to a place of understanding at what level they're thinking about culture. Are they thinking in headlines? Are they thinking in depth? Are they thinking executional or are they thinking more strategic? And how aligned they are as a group. And it's often in the interview process where we pick up the really rich insights that support the data and give us the fuller picture. So we do a from two in terms of quantitative and we do a from two in terms of qualitative. And then we get them together in a room and we crunch it through and, yeah. and we have some fun. So it sounds like a time of much tension. If culture is about beliefs, Peer and I spend a lot of time, of our time in leadership development, and a lot of that was around behaviours because they're observable. It's sort of the bit of the iceberg that's above the water. How do you observe or get a read on current beliefs? Yeah, and I, I, I think understanding the linkage between beliefs driving behaviors and behaviors driving outcomes is is really important and for example if you have a belief in your organization that experimentation and acceptance of failure is critical to making progress then the behavior you will probably observe is exploratory thinking yeah, we'll explore different ideas and the outcome ultimately may be quite an innovative organization. Now you think of that same belief in reverse. Let's assume that the belief in the organization that is failure is to be avoided. Failure is unacceptable. What happens then is that the behavior becomes one of people avoiding responsibility, playing safe. And then if things go wrong, you start to see blame. Now, nobody would sign up to a blame culture Everyone would sign up to an innovation culture, but do we understand the beliefs that we have to get aligned on in order to get there? And this is where you get 
really strong differences of opinion around the board table. Because what do we mean by acceptance of mistakes? How do we respond when somebody makes a mistake? Because, of course, that's the, the critical leadership behavior. Yeah, it's, it's a deep conversation. I know I've noticed on, you see a lot of talk on LinkedIn, et cetera, around building a culture where failure is acceptable. And of course, that can be true, but it's actually rather more nuanced than that, isn't it? Because if you, as you say, what is failure in that sense? And uh, yeah, so it, it sounds like a real deep dive is required to, to unpick and different organizations, Dan, and different functions within different organizations have to have this conversation in the context of the, the business they're in. I mean, it's very high risk associated with failure. You've got to remove those consequences. But understanding where you, actually the impact of making a few mistakes is quite low risk and isn't really going to touch the share price, then let people explore. I was going to ask a million dollar question. So you come into your team as a manager and you're told you've got a few challenges in the dynamics and the culture of the team, but you're sorted out. Like, how do you start? If you're coming in and you're brand new into an organisation and a team, like, what do you need to do to start defining and setting out the, a more optimal culture or even grasping the nettle and actually even being able to talk about the fact that it isn't that great? It's a great question. And I, I always come back to the same start point. And the same question, which, is this team safe? Is it a safe environment? And when you get to a question as basic as that, you can start to look at different aspects of that question. So firstly, is everyone included? Basic human need. Is everyone included as part of this team? Secondly, is it safe not to have the answers and to learn to ask questions and if it's not safe to ask basic questions you're probably not going to develop the capability of this team the third area is are people that are competent able to contribute is their contribution valued uh, and you get in a lot of technical organizations you get technical people often being overridden by generalists and it's it's a really unsafe place for technical people to be unless this is really understood and explained. So can I contribute? And then the fourth element of safety is, can I challenge? And when I challenge, am I met with a positive reception or am I met with defensiveness? So there's these four aspects of safety, which if anyone going into a new team could get a really quick read on these four areas and a pretty, pretty good insight into where they need to begin the process of making this team safe. And then when the team's safe, you can start to think about the more subtle changes that might take the culture in one direction or another. I would always start with a sense check on safety. Yeah. I mean, that, that's like a sort of Maslow hierarchy, isn't it? So that basic need of feeling, feeling safe in, yeah. in that environment. But I guess we must be preloaded with our own bias about what culture needs to look like based on our personality, how we've been brought up, even which country we reside in. We must have a bias towards this. Yeah, and national cultures are a really interesting insight into organizational cultures. 
So you can almost, you could, like, if you do a diagnostic of an organizational culture, you can pretty much identify where that organization originates from. Because the way we take our national cultural values into our organizational context is obvious, yeah? And we all bring it with us. And then we have our own personality and our own biases. And these biases are the critical, one of the critical things to break down. Often when you go to see a CEO to talk about culture change, they'll say to me, Kevin, could, can you help me with this journey I'm on? And my first question is, where does the journey come from? And who's defined the journey? Well, I have. Okay. So do you know that it's the right journey for this organization? And usually get something like, well, it worked previously. And you suddenly realize what you're into is, is a sort of stereotype, which a very senior leader may have brought with them from another organization, which is now going to be magically implanted into the new organization. And breaking down that bias, breaking down that assumption and getting them to think about what this organization really needs, not what they prefer, what the organization really needs, is often when the conversation either goes into orbit or stops, because some people don't want to hear that. This is prompting so many questions, Kevin. How do you... Let's get into down to brass tacks. How do you go about changing it? You've talked about the from and to. Once you get you're really clear about what you want. How, how, what, what are the steps there that you, in a team or an organization? So first you do the diagnostic, you do the qualitative interviews, you drive out areas of misalignment or areas of significant change requirement. And, and they're both important. So if you have people with misaligned views, that really needs thinking through, talking through. And you're into the classic workshopping situation. But what you mustn't do in my view, is overcomplicate this. Start where there is an alignment. Start where there is a relatively easy you know, change process that you can define and, and get it successful. And do some simple, aligned, consistent things really well. And when you start this process, think about behaviors and ways of working in parallel. One of the biggest mistakes we see organizations making is they do a lot of work on behavior and a lot of work on defining the behavioral competences that the organization needs, but they don't do enough work on working practice. Now, if you do a lot of work on, let's say, the behavior of the responsible empowerment, but you don't change your decision-making processes then it's going to be very hard to empower anybody. And unpicking some of these decision-making, some of these processes and some of these practices can be the, the sticking point. But you've but, got to do it in parallel. Otherwise, the behaviours are not enabled. Yeah, it, we've used the um, clarity, climate and competence quite a bit on the show. And it, I think there's that competence piece that is obviously important. But again, people can ignore those clarity and climate pieces where the ways of working are there as well. Kevin, if we just zoom into teams now again, in that context, an organisation made up of teams, you touched on this briefly. If, if I'm in a team in China that is in compliance, or if I'm in the States in, in product development, in the same organization, 
is that a monolithic culture that I have to adopt, despite my country culture and my work and my role? How do, what does that look like at a team level? How does it hit me when I'm in, in, the, in, one of those, in one of those elements? We like to adopt a phrase which is what we call tight loose. So when you're defining culture change, what are the two or three things that you want to be in the, the core, the stick of rock, yeah, that will run through your organization as consistently as you possibly can? And keep these to a minimum because it's almost impossible to have one single culture across a global organization, across all the functional areas and the regions that involves. But what are the things that you're going to be you're going to talk about as your core? And then what are the things that are looser? What are the things like execution, for example, might be looser in certain countries or functions or business types where you can allow some autonomy to your local organization to put their flavor on it and their spin on it and their market context on it, which is at the end of the day what most businesses are facing. So we like this tight, loose idea. Don't overdo the tight. And don't allow the loose to be a complete redefinition of what good looks like, but have a combination so that teams on the one hand feel as though they're part of a, a big, you know, organization with an overriding vision and culture, but at the same time feel as though they have a little bit of local autonomy interpretation and that the organization recognizes that they may be in a fairly unique situation or a unique market with differences. And then the complication is where teams come together. So if you have a, a, an Asian team, let's say in procurement, working with an American marketing team, you've got to bring these teams together to work through the empathy, work through the understanding of why the other group are working the way they are and vice versa. So we tend to find tight, loose empathy is a nice sort of triangle for working through the the differences that have to exist. And it, and it strikes me, Kevin, I, I'm interested to know your thoughts around this, that, you know, when teams are under pressure to deliver, they're a little reticent to talk about these types of things. And they're sometimes not even very good at being self-reflective or being able to shift out of if I'm really direct, a bias to just deliver and make it okay for me in a team, in an organization to get paid, keep my job, everything's going okay. And I'll go, I'll dip my toe in the water and we'll talk about this, but I don't commit to it. Now, that's a little harsh, but everyone is under pressure at the moment. I mean, is that, am I off on one? Or is that something that you see that is hard sometimes to broker that lap? That deeper level of conversation? It's spot on. And this is when you often realize that what leaders want isn't a culture change. It's success. And you've got to believe that the culture change enables that success. If you don't believe that one causes the other, then when times get tough, you'll just revert to high-pressure leadership methods to, to drive results in the short term. And we see this a lot. So when the pressure's on, the behaviors change. Now, if you believe that the culture drives the outcome, so the beliefs, the behaviors, the outcome again, and you're aligned on that belief, and you've embedded 
the culture change in everything you talk about when you talk about performance, then the behaviors you want to see in people are just as important as the results they deliver. And this is the hardest step for often for leaders to take because if you ask for behavioral change, but you only recognize and reward results, then you will get the behaviors that drive results. You might not get the behaviors that are sustainable to drive innovation capability for the long term, if that's what you want to, to achieve. So what leaders recognize, what leaders reward, and how the outcomes they want are embedded in the way they work is critical. But this short-term, long-term, and culture's long-term, results tend to be short-term. And, and we often fall off the horse of culture change to drive the short-term result. And then we're back where we started because we've compromised our future. We're obsessed by it. And sometimes we pay lip service to it being important. But the seduction to get the results is too strong. And that's that's what we divert to. And, and with some pretty horrible consequences. I mean, we had a public apology in Australian government today based on a, a culture that is around sexual harassment. And it hasn't changed and yes, we get an apology, but, but quite frankly, what does that mean? And there's been some quite rightful pushback on that because, again, it's are we walking the talk? And we could talk culture, but how do we actually deliver it? That's pretty important. Yeah, are we, are we throwing headlines out there? Are we, have we read an article, read a book, saw the TED Talk? Are we throwing the headline out to the organisation as an announcement or are we changing our own beliefs? You take safety for an example. You take this concept of psychological safety. A lot of leaders will say, this is a safe place. They'll announce that it's a safe place. It's okay to make mistakes. We want to share and learn from our mistakes. But what they don't often do is share their own mistakes. That's when it becomes really safe. When the guy who's the leader of the team says, guys, I messed up. This is what I learned. So that must be the power of example, Kevin. I mean, that really must be. The power of example must be one of the biggest catalysts for, for, for culture change. So if we had some lovely examples in the UK government recently in the, in the press, but when you set things that are, you know, and, and you don't live by them and you don't deliver them, then you, you get a culture gap, don't you, really, between what, what we say we want but what we're actually, did, what we're leading as an example. It's a great point. And um, we always say that in a client situation, we say culture is for everyone or for no mm. one. You, you can pick and choose by level or title or function. And this is why the consequences of culture change are often not obvious to leaders when they embark on the process. Because the bit about consequences for the leader themselves, yeah, the leaders themselves, and the responsibility they have for that is, is fundamental because as soon as you behave in a way contrary to the way you're asking everyone else to behave, then, you know, the whole process becomes, <laughs> becomes pointless in the eyes of employees. We're in definite danger of delving into UK politics right now. So I Kevin, won't do it. No, no, that's, that's steer well away. Kevin, you've challenged, you've given us a lot of challenging uh, ideas. I think it would challenge people's perceptions around around culture and really useful direction you talked about the danger of falling off the culture horse how can our listeners 
get on the culture horse, if you don't mind the terrible segue. What could a team do to start a conversation? Of course, they can connect with you, but how could they do something just to get that conversation started within the team? I, I think just having a, a conversation within the team, with or without the boss present initially, some teams prefer to have an open conversation facilitated by somebody else just on the topic of safety. Is it safe not to have the answer around here? Is it safe to challenge each other? And if, if the answers to these questions are no, then you know you've got some fundamental values to change within, the, within this particular team. And the thing about safety is not the same as trust. Trust is between two people. Safety is within a group. You, you only need one person in that group to respond badly in a situation or negatively towards another person for that group to be unsafe. And, and, and this is where teams have to talk and work this through as a team. And it's usually a combination of one-to-one -one discussions with somebody like me or you, combined with some facilitation discussion in the group, and then emphasis on future rather than past. And I think this is the this is often the mistake that, that, that the people make is they go so much into things that have happened in the past and we go round and round the same uh, circle trying to analyze it and you say the same stories come up time and time again. We don't switch into future mode anywhere near quickly enough. And one of the interesting things about culture is often even in merger and acquisition situations, the idea of what the future should look like is much more aligned than the idea of what the past has looked like. So where we've come from or experiences we've had, but when you ask people about the future, it's much easier to get into an aligned, positive discussion. We've definitely found that. It's a, the future's a uniting force, isn't it, for even quite disparate groups? Yeah, we've definitely experienced that ourselves and we appear in our work with teams. And I think, uh, I think, I think it was Drucker once it was a culture each strategy for breakfast and probably lunch and dinner actually but you can have the best laid plans but culture is something that we need to take really seriously and actually see that our behavior as a team leader is instrumental in creating it so rather than blaming your team members you should be turning the mirror back on yourself to see how you might be creating it and creating that conversation. And I, I think that's what's been really illuminating, Kevin, is that future, future, <laughs> that accountability. We can't blame anyone else. Absolutely. And it, again, is one of the biggest mistakes organizations make moving from the executive leadership team into the heart of the organization too quickly. You know, spend time as an executive leadership team really really working through these beliefs, really working through these consequences. How are they going to hold each other accountable? So how are they going to call it out when one of their own, one of the other board members, for example, behaves badly? And it's getting to these sort of feedback relationships and in the moment, catching themselves in the moment when you have a really mature approach to this type of change. And then people see it. They see an alignment. They see a consistency. They know now that they can trust these behaviors. And it's not just one individual doing what he wants to do. It's an aligned group of leaders 
believing in what they're saying, doing, and how they're behaving. Uh, we have a phrase which is uh, culture-enabled strategy, and, and that's it. It's, it's not about building a comfort zone. It's not about personal biases. It's about executing our strategy. A wonderful place to leave, Kevin. Thank you. Sort of connecting back to the what the what our teams are trying to achieve. You've taken this word culture and really picked it apart and helped us to illuminate for teams practically what they can do to get stuck into it. So thank you so much for joining us today on We Not Me. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Peter. Kevin's experience is really organisational. It's he spends a lot of time with top teams, and but I really think that there's this translates into every team, doesn't it? This question of culture, some of the things he's talked about from his own experience and research, I think we we can translate those into any team anywhere to really think about this important topic. Without a doubt, I think I think all of what he was saying was translatable. And really what you're asking yourself, the question is, how do I set the tone? What is it as a team member or as a team leader? Do I contravene the culture of the organisation? Do I stand by? Do I let things slip? It takes courage, I think is what I'm hearing from this, and a different type of conversation. It's easy in being busy and being task-focused to let things slip, just like the brew I don't think that was intent. I don't think people, we understand this from Rutger, Rutger Bregman. We're not innately evil, but we do take shortcuts and they have horrible consequences. But yeah, so, and I, and I think that, that piece he mentioned about that foundation of psychological safety, again, being vital that you can people speak up. We talked about a few political and, and uh, business situations in the top of the show and can people speak up safely in those situations I, I think is the is is really is really crucial i think the other piece that really struck me was a couple of things that the, the, the teams can have these conversations and it's a really practical thing for for people to do. sit down and talk about their beliefs talk about the culture that they need and don't shy from that and, um, you know, even family can talk about it, but don't shy away from that and keep t- focusing on the everyday, but really have these conversations. That, that, that struck me as something that any team could spend time doing to really connect more closely once that safe environment has been created. And sometimes you don't know all the answers. I had a lovely one with my family where my daughter's saying to me, it's very annoying when you ask me questions about my day at, <laughs> my day at school. And because I've already answered my other one and I don't want to have to repeat it. And I'm going, yes, but then, so I, we can either have a culture around the dinner table where I'm not interested and that's more annoying, or I'm showing you that, I, that I'm interested and I care and that's where I'm coming from. And a good example of when two beliefs are clashing a little bit. And obviously you could have an email distribution list between the, two, the three of you, <laughs> make it all really efficient, but that's not quite the point. Is it? No. The, and to that point, the, another one that struck out, struck me was if you, is the impact on self as well. If you're shifting towards a culture, that's not just, oh, I'm going to enjoy this culture. You may have to make transformations yourself. If you're naturally you've got the answers, you're an expert, and you want to move to a more curious, exploratory culture where you can be challenged and, and be more experimental. You have to make personal changes there. It's not, and the, so really face those, face those challenges. So that was something that jumped out for me, that it's, it comes down to the individual to transform as well. Absolutely. And that takes courage. 
it appears simple, but it's not easy. But does it is a conversation that uh, I I think is a absolutely crucial one for all teams to be having. Otherwise, you're just a, trying to achieve a series of tasks in a vacuum and probably not feeling very happy and engaged in the process. And we all know that feeling of when you're with a real high-performing culture, it's just an extraordinary feeling. And when it's there, and you know what then, when that culture's met, and I'm just delving into politics for a moment, but I, I've often thought in the last couple of weeks, the party gate here in the UK, which we mentioned, there's a moment probably when someone said, let's take Boris a birthday cake and sing happy birthday to him. When someone, if the culture was safe enough and the culture was really about following the COVID rules, someone would have said, no, he'd hate that. Don't do it. That breaks the rules. So you can, it's self-policing. It's not up to just the leader to, to kind of, if, if it's working, it comes from everywhere and the standards you walk past, the standards you accept. So it's on all of us and every team members, every team member to, to keep it on track. So yeah, fascinating stuff. So culture sounds soft. It's, it's hard. hard. It is. It's, the, it's, it's rock hard. Exactly. Great. So really interesting topic. And I hope that people have taken a lot away from that. Pierre, who have we got? On the show next week, I think we've got a bit of a change of gear. We've got to tell you, we're putting the heat up. And oh. no, sorry, oh. it was, I knew, it's, I it's a, that's a mad that. joke, that is. <laughs> but the reason I'm saying that is we are, we're talking to Sandy, who is a female firefighter and really wanted to know what's, what goes on in that team. You know, you're sitting in the, in the firehouse waiting for the call. What's it like? And what's that experience like working also mainly with a male team? So I, I think it's going to be really insightful. And she's going to have lots of stories to tell us. Wow. We're going straight to the front line. And, and yeah, that'll be a fascinating conversation. I cannot wait. And, but that's it for this episode. You can find show notes and resources at squadify.net. Just click on the We Not Me podcast link under resources. If you've enjoyed the show, please do share the love and recommend it to your friends. We Not Me is produced by Mark Stedman of Origin. Thank you so much for listening. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.